All right, peace, everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of Meeting of the Minds. I'm your host, Open Hands, and today we have an incredible guest with us. We have Hope Solo on the show today. Try not to blush, Sister Hope, while I while I give you this this. But we we have we have we have two two um two very different levels of of amazing on this show. And Hope, we we got a saying within a, within the community. We like to give our heroes their roses while they could still smell them. And um part of uh part of what's what's really been a pleasure about the show is a we've been able to get perspectives and and different ideas and knowledge and wisdom from some really incredible people and b we've also had the opportunity to honor some of the heroes uh in the world you know and um while we're speaking to a guest today whose fame has come from athletics there's also been this enormous component that's come from being a revolutionary and and working to change the world and that connects and intersects with hip-hop in a in a really huge way and so let me break you down for a moment folks if you know hope solo as an athlete as the premier goalie of the world of any gender you will know that hope is a two-time fifa golden glove award winner uh bronze ball award winner in the 2011 world cup she holds Goalkeeper records in appearances on the field, starts, wins, shutouts. This is the first goalkeeper in the world to ever make 100 shutouts. The most wins in a season ever. Uh, The most consecutive minutes played. The longest undefeated streak at 55 games. She has two Olympic gold medals. Uh, She's played in three Women's World Cups and took a World Cup title. She's also a best-selling author for her memoir, Solo, A Memoir of Hope, which y'all could check out. She is a mentor at the One Young World Summit, which uh, maybe we could hear about more as we go on. She was a presidential candidate for the U.S. Soccer Federation. She's a world-traveling speaker, commentator, and a brave activist for gender equality, a comrade in the movement for power to all people, friend, community member, mother, and all around incredible person that we're going to get wisdom from today. Hope, welcome to the podcast. Matt, I feel I feel humbled. It's it's truly an honor to be here with you and with your audience today. Um, you know, you <laughs> you go down the list of of my accomplishments on the field, and I have to admit, it feels like a lifetime ago. All uh, the off the field accomplishments now, and the things I've been fighting for has taken precedence over everything that that <laughs> I aspired to do throughout my entire life. All, you know, 35 years of playing soccer now takes a backseat to, to the fight and the issues off the field. So it truly does seem like a lifetime ago when you when you make your intro to me on the soccer field anyway. Man, and I and I didn't uh, I didn't acknowledge in that intro that that uh, Hope is now retired and and into all kinds of other things in that retirement from soccer, but not retirement from life or, or business. Um, is there, before, before we go on, is there, is there any key points since that retirement from, from soccer or in, into the, the common or the, you know, the, the current time that we're in right now that I left off of that, that, that we should have at the beginning of this? Well, I think we should be honest right now, Matt. Um, I got fired. I got fired at the, the height mm. of, of, uh, my sport, you know, I was in the best shape of my life. I was playing 
um, at my highest level. Uh, and I got fired in the 20, right after the 2016 Olympics. It was our worst showing in the history of women's soccer for the United States. Um, we did not medal. We didn't make it to the medal rounds. Um, and I was disappointed. I was a poor sport, much like many of our male counterparts are <laughs> every single day. And, and I got fired. And the truth of the matter is I got fired because of my off the field fights, my off the field passion for equality, for equal pay, uh, for standing up and using my voice. And at the end of the day, I was told by the United States Soccer Federation that I was asking questions that were above my pay grade and I needed to know my place, stay in my lane and kick a soccer ball around and look pretty doing it and, and, and shut the fuck up basically. And at the end of the day, I got fired. I did not retire. Um, I think using the mm -hmm. word retirement is, is, you know, it's, it's kind of like I sailed off into the sunset. I didn't sail off in, into the sunset. I've been blackballed from the soccer community. Yeah, blackballed is a, is even might even take the term fired into an even more accurate terminology. Absolutely. Huh? And I, I wouldn't change it, Matt, you know, there, there's nothing that I regret. Um, and I think where you were headed, um, with, the, with this particular question is that my passion for soccer actually shifted my my passion for fighting for equality became more important in my life than than winning gold medals than winning accolades than than playing for my country at the end of the day i accomplished everything i wanted to personally accomplish on the field being a part of four olympic games and three world cups and at that point i realized this fight is bigger than than medals it's, it's bigger than myself and it's bigger than me and my teammates and we took that fight to to a, a completely different level, and and uh, you know, <laughs> I got put down because of this fight. But trust me, and as you'll see today, I, I was never silenced. And mm -hmm. it, it took a lot of a, uh, you know, I, I took I took a beating along the way. Um, a lot of sacrifices were made, uh, whether that was monetary sacrifices or opportunities, but looking back there's nothing i would change because i know i'm on the right side of history continuing this fight for future generations and hopefully we can get into those details because this fight you know it, it does cross um so many different genres whether it's the hip-hop genre whether it's sports yeah. genre there's so many uh similarities when we fight for equality that changes the world not just here in america but globally yeah. and we're changing the world uh obviously for for the betterment of the future generations so I'm, I'm in a good place. It hasn't been easy. I felt all alone at times, you know, on an island all by myself. I've, I've had many tears, you know, I've, it, it's been tough. It's been a struggle, but I do know that nothing is worthwhile if it's not worth the struggle. Mm -hmm. Struggle is the word, right? Yeah, we, and, and that's one of the beautiful things about, about this conversation that we're opening up to is, you know, uh, struggle has a couple different connotations to it, right? Like there's that, um, that, uh, you know, so, uh, struggle is work, it's effort, right? And, and it's strain and, and on its surface struggles is one of those words where it sounds less than desirable, but, um, this is one of like those intersections, right? Where hip hop has this, has this premise of struggle as does, you know, women fighting for equality as does people suffering from classism or racism or all of these different factors where we know this is not a world that's complete or the way that, that it should be or can be, in which case struggle takes a very 
honored position, right? In our vocabularies. And, and when we say the struggle, we mean we're working for something bigger than ourselves, which, um, which is dope. And, and on that note, before I, we're going to break this down into a lot of his different parts, but, but before we, we kind of like leave this, this introduction of that idea of getting blackballed for, for standing for what you believe in and for fighting for it. Um, I've kind of like, I've, I've told this story to different people in different ways. Cause I feel like it's, it's really a, a, an incredible expose of like what the real nature of sports is of the, what the real nature of, you know, gender bias and sexism in the world and a lot of other things. And what it means when you stand up for yourself against a massive, a massive power like us soccer or, or soccer in the world. Um, can you break down just a little bit more, help me tell the story better of the timing of, of when they fired you. So, and, and also for the world like your comment was, this was after a game you were playing. Was it, was it, was it Sweden? Was that, was that the la- the game when this happened? Yeah, yeah. We got knocked out in the quarterfinals against Sweden in the 2016 Olympics. It was our worst showing in the history of the sport for the the women's side of U.S. soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, we're always expected to win gold. Um, at the very least, we're expected to be on the podium. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and after winning the 2015 World Cup, um, which that in itself um, was was kind of the the epitome of, of everything that I set out to do um, was to win a World Cup. I could not walk away from the game. I can imagine walking away from the game without having that World Cup trophy. So for me, 2015 and everything that entailed through personal struggles, um, winning that 2015 World Cup was, was truly the epitome of what I set out to do. The 2016 Olympics, a few, you know, less than a year later, I think it was 10 months later, nine or 10 months later, our team wasn't ready. We weren't prepared. We were still living off the high of the World Cup. We uh, we won the World Cup. We filed um, our complaint for equal pay with the EEOC, which is the Equal um, Employment Opportunity Commission, which actually is the very first step one has to make before actually having a federal lawsuit for equal pay. You can't just sue your employer as much as you think we can all just, if we have enough money, you can just slap a lawsuit on somebody that's not how it works when it comes to equal pay equal pay has to you have to have permission by the eeoc the equal employment opportunity commission which is a governmental agency in the united states um so we filed with the eeoc our complaint and who is we uh five of us i'm sorry there were five of us on the national team who filed this complaint in 2015 after we won the world cup mm-hmm. but going into the olympics a roundabout way of saying we were distracted. We weren't a team. We were still celebrating the high of winning the World Cup. We go into the 2016 Olympics. We were ill-prepared. The coaching staff was ill-prepared. I'm not surprised that we didn't medal. Um, we weren't a team whatsoever. Um, and we can get into that in a number of different ways because it had to do with popularity and sexism and marketing and, and trying to make our money off the field, which mm-hmm. um, in itself paved the way for us to be crabs in a bucket, tearing each other down and, and not being not being a team, which ultimately is what you need to be to be, to be successful, especially at that stage. But so in 2016, at the end of 2015, actually, we filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Now, this was under uh, the Trump administration. They were overworked. They were underfunded. Um, and and 
it, it was a huge case. It was a it was a case um, filled with popularity. The United States congressmen and women were behind it. Senators were behind it. Uh, the former president um, and vice president Barack Obama and Joe Biden at the time were behind our, our our fight and our cause. But under the Trump administration, everything was stalled. Um, hmm. You know, women's rights were not a huge part of that administration. It wasn't at the top of the list. Whoa, whoa, so, whoa! <laughs> so the EEOC underfunded, overworked, and simply just wasn't a priority to the Trump administration. They sat on our complaint for close to three years three years with nothing happening so before we could even get the permission to sue our employer so finally um the statute of limitations was about to be up and it almost just passed me by wow and i i I randomly happened to see it you know i'm reading way too many court documents these days and attorney documents and legal briefs and i happened to see that this particular date where the statute of limitations is three years and I reached out to my attorney and I said, hey, did you see this? We can't even file now in federal court after Monday. I think it was like on a Friday or a Thursday. We had one weekend to get a brief together and to file under federal law. We actually had to ask for the approval of the EEOC. We, we said, okay, our three-year limitations is coming up. If you're not going to you know, get anywhere on this case, can you at least give us the permission? Is there enough evidence to say that we would have a federal court case? They gave us the blessing that they, you know, they said there is enough evidence, but we're not going to make a call. We're going to keep our hands out of this. We're not going to dirty up our hands. Go ahead. You have the permission to sue your employer under federal law. So I did it. I, I became the first athlete in the history of the United States, actually globally, to sue their employer under the Equal Pay Act. Now, the Equal Pay Act, I think uh, I should probably give a little bit of history here. I think it's really important to understand that the Equal Pay Act and Title VII only exists in the United States. So um, Mm. only an American athlete actually can file under the Equal Pay Act. Uh This this federal, this law um, became federal law in 1963. It was signed into law by John John F. Kennedy. Um, It specifically states that if you have the same employer, if you have the same job description, if you have the same responsibilities, then you cannot discriminate based on gender. Mm-hmm. So specifically for soccer, you look at the U.S. men's national team, they play soccer, they have to do appearances, they have to qualify for World Cups and Olympics, which by the way, they haven't qualified for World Cups and Olympics, the women have. So really our job description, you know, we spend more hours um, traveling competing because we play more games because we actually qualify for world cups and olympics mm-hmm. so our responsibilities are actually more for Great. the women's team than the men's team mm-hmm. um but almost 60 years later this law was passed in 1963 <laughs> and almost 60 years later we're still fighting for something that 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 is supposed to be our right here in america so that weekend i reached out to my attorney and i said hey we have three days to file this otherwise i can't ever ever uh have a, a a court case under the equal pay act you said, so, you said how many how you had how long say I that one more time to them i had the weekend the weekend my attorney, my attorney the had the weekend. okay yeah so i reached out to the rest of the, the the current team members at the time saying hey we we have to do something you know the eeoc has sat on us for three years and at that point in time nobody was ready to take a stance Nobody was ready. And I'll never forget the day where we looked at one another in each other's eyes and we said, hey, do we understand 
what it's going to take to fight for future generations, for equal pay, for equal treatment, for Title VII, for travel? Do we understand the sacrifices that we have to make? We might lose health insurance. We might not play matches because U.S. soccer won't schedule those matches because they don't want to pay us for those matches. So we might not play matches for a year, but now is the time to do whatever it takes. And we were all committed to the cause. But Matt, what happens is you take a, a you know, multi-million dollar corporation, the United States Soccer Federation, they know what they're doing. You know, they're the business minds. They divide and conquer. And that's exactly what happened. They weakened our fight. It became me against uh, against U.S. soccer. No other teammate signed on to sue U.S. soccer for equal pay. It took them a, close to a year later to file a class action suit. So now we have my separate federal law uh, court case, and we have a class action suit now against U.S. soccer. It's the first one in history for any athlete to file um, under the e Equal Pay Act against their employer. And we've been in court now for several years. Um, I think the pressure right now is on U.S. soccer to come to the table to pay back pay. Um, they, they have to have a settlement. And I would think this would happen before Tokyo. And that back pay would go back how long? And, and like roughly what would that, that equal out to? So the back pay for me would go back three years uh, prior to when I was done playing. Mm-hmm pre three years, the last three years of pay. So they will go back three back pay athletes, three years of pay at an equal rate to their male counterparts. Yes. Plus damages. Plus but yeah. Damages. yeah. And, and, and what, and just for a full understanding, what point of this process were you at when you, the, the comment about Sweden came and you were blackballed from the sport? Uh, so it, at uh, what point in the process? So we had already filed our complaint with the EEOC. Um, going into the Olympics, U.S. soccer had asked every Olympic player who made the roster, so all 18 of us, to come up with an anime, a cartoon, um, telling their story, whether, whatever that story was, about what was important to them in their life. And mm. they had these beautiful artists come make these animes. And we asked, you know, who is sponsoring these animes? Who is getting money from these animes? And mm -hmm. U.S. Soccer told us, oh, no, 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 no. These are purely for the fans. We're going to put them on our website, and it's purely for the fans. So when I got the final cut, the, the final piece, and I was supposed to approve it, I saw all of the advertisements on the piece. And I said, what the heck is going on right now? Obviously, somebody's making a lot of money from these from these anime videos and they're selling them and they're marketing them and we're not seeing a dime from it. Mm. So they're using our name, our likeness. They sold it to different companies and they made millions off of these animes. And I found it out right before the Olympics, right before we got on the plane to go to Rio and I reached out and that's when they said, hope you're barking up the wrong tree. I found out that they were making millions off of our name and likeness, and they lied to us about and it. And you're barking up the wrong tree by trying to capitalize or have a piece of somebody else capitalizing all on your own image, voice, ideas. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I knew at that point that uh, my time was limited with U.S. soccer. I knew 
I knew uh, they were looking for an excuse. Best goalkeeper in the history of the game on the top of my game, but it doesn't matter because they want to make an example. You you better conform. You better fit into our little bubble. You better walk the walk and talk the talk that we want you to walk and talk. Otherwise, you don't, you're not part of the system anymore. And and that was it. And And they used me. They fired me. And it scared the rest of my teammates to continue to try to negotiate a, a, a new collective bargaining agreement, a new contract. It was worse than the previous years. Um, they divided and they conquered us. And, and that's where we're at today. And, and before, we, before we leave this piece, um, to take a little step back, what, what in exactly where you're at now, what is, what's the next thing that's coming up that we're looking out for? that we should be be watching to see All right, so, how this results. So there's so much. So that, that's the Equal Pay Act, and that's Title Seven. Now, um, as an NGB, a national governing body, under that's what U.S. soccer is. They're an NGB, a national governing body. So that's like any Olympic sport. So you have USA Swimming, you have USA Gymnastics, you have USA Basketball. All of them are NGBs. To be an NGB, you have to be a nonprofit. You have to put money back into the sport, not just professionals, but back into the youth, back into adult soccer, back into Paralympians, back mm-hmm. into the USA Deaf team. You you put the money to all constituents of that particular sport. And US soccer um, has become a very rich white kid sport here in America. Mm-hmm. And the money goes upwards to U.S. soccer. So U.S. soccer is actually getting money from the thousands and thousands of soccer players, youth soccer players here in America. They then take that money and it goes into the professional men's leagues. So there's conflict of interest. There's a lack of transparency as a nonprofit, as an Olympic sport, as an NGB. So there's a lot of issues, um, not just with equal pay and Title VII. There's a lot of other governance issues that we're, we're dealing with right now. And I have a complaint right now with the USOC, the United States Olympic Committee. That's actually the USOPC, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And they're the oversight committee for every NGB. So this is really, really important. This case is actually probably more important than the equal pay case because this holds U.S. soccer accountable to make soccer the preeminent sport in the United States, which means they cannot sit on $170 million of surplus funds. Those funds need to be put, put back into our communities throughout the United States to help give opportunity to kids um, from from states that don't have MLS teams. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to give opportunity, not take away opportunities. And so right now that's one of our biggest hearings and that is coming, again, we sat on that for three years. I won in an appeal. Um, US soccer was found in violation of the Ted Stevens Act. They just recently changed some of their bylaws when it had to do with conflicts of interest. So. So we're making huge, huge leeway, but at the same time, um, nobody knows about it. You know, it's it's yeah. This is yeah. This is time not headline news. It's not. It's not. And U.S. Soccer wants it that way, but also of all of our, you know, this is during a pandemic, so we're we're having, we're going to court through Zoom calls these mm-hmm. days. So you're not having the media there. You're not having journalists there. It's, it's been a very difficult time because these issues are so important to to the soccer world right now and to giving everybody opportunities yeah these are these are historic shifts that potentially are, are being withstood to make right now in these things and it's and it's interesting too uh 
the way that, that this is, so, you know, one of the, the things that we've been really digging into over this, the, the course of these few episodes of this podcast has been uh, breaking, becoming an Olympic sport. And it's funny, as I was kind of introducing and, and thinking about all the different parallels where, where the struggle that you involved yourself in and that's involved itself into your life just by being born into this process has coincided in so many ways, so many other different types of struggle. And then, and then again, hip hop offers this, this unique perspective of being new in so many different ways, right? So now we have like, and in listening to that, that storyline of the way that that soccer football has grown and evolved, particularly within the United States, and some of the factors that you know he said make this thing a rich white kid sport, and when it's the most the most universal sport theoretically that we have out here, and then you have this thing like like breaking where it's something that came from came from um, low income communities and made and created something amazing. And now part of this big worry is as it enters into this arena, same as soccer, that um, what that result might be, especially in terms of, you know, um, economic mobility and the ability to play competitively, which interestingly, like in breaking, you have like, you know, you needed some cardboard or a little piece of used linoleum on the block and cats would get down and do this incredible thing. Um, in terms of that larger question, you know, of, of how economics factor into athletes progressing in their sport. I know you, you have a lot of experience with that and have, have made that a platform to, um, in other ways in your, your, um, presidential bid and in other, other parts of your life. Um, can you kind of like break down a little bit of how that happens and like, what kind of things should we be looking out for is, is like, how does the economic position that you come from being in a privileged place, how does that translate into, you know, rising the ranks of the sport to an Olympic level or whatever larger level that is. Yeah, of course. So, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back a little bit further, Matt. Just so, okay. uh, I mean, I I was an athlete through and through. Um, I came from a very small town in Eastern Washington, um, very rural. Uh, I came from a family that didn't have a lot of money. Um, uh, I, I love sports. You know, I, I grew up playing on the beach or playing at the park with my, my brother and his friends. I, I was a tomboy. I loved it. I, w I was a naive little kid who just loved sports. Um, mm -hmm. I had a one track mind. My passion became actually my dream. You know, my, my passion for soccer, it, it kept me going. Um, it was my one focus was, was to be the best. Um, I had no constraints on me as a young girl mentally. I had no constraints. I had great role models in my mother and my, in my grandmother as well, very strong women around me. Um, but I was naive, let's be honest, I, I was naive. I didn't realize societal attempts to restrain me, probably not until, not until college when I was 18 years old. My innocence was, was then stripped. Mm. <laughs> and that, 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 that is a little bit of a funny story and it has to do with a, a my husband in college, who, who was a big name, as you know, Matt, but it was a big name football player. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll never forget when I went to my first college party and, and we had a game, like a preseason game the next morning, or maybe it was workout, like 6 a.m. workouts. But either way, 
we had to be fresh and we, we had to be ready to compete and perform. And, and I was, I was focused. I was, I was a division one college athlete. I wanted to be successful. I was playing on the youth national teams at that time, even on the full U S team. I, I was a very focused college collegiate athlete. And I, I go to my first party and there was probably five or six of us on the soccer team who was leaving a football party and we had some, some jocks come up to us and they're like, where the, where the hell are you going? Why are you guys leaving so early? And I remember speaking up and I was like, oh, we, we have a game. I think it was a game because I, I, I recall saying that we have a game tomorrow. And I'll never forget this. this. This guy by the name of Spencer Marona, football player at the University of Washington said, mm-hmm. he said, nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares about girl sports. Nobody cares. We're the money makers at this university. The mm. only sport anybody ever cares about is football. And I just remember being like, oh man, I was my dream to be a division one athlete. I always thought I would just be respected when I got there. Oh, and man. I was naive, you know, and then all of a sudden my bubble was burst and it was like, oh shit, I'm really just a, just, just a girl athlete, you know, still trying to pave my own path and demand respect. And that was heartbreaking. That it, it was heartbreaking. it was a dose of reality for me, and I'll never get forget my uh, my now husband, who at that time I barely knew in college. He pulled Spencer Marona back, and he's like, "Man, you know, show some respect. What are, what are you gonna do? Fight a bunch of girls? <laughs> like, what are you what are you doing right now?" And it, and it was just a bad look. It was a bad was a look. Bad but you look. run into these type of men. To this day, this is a part of. You know, male chauvinism is a part of every fabric of society. But I didn't really see it until I was 18 years old. And I do appreciate my naive childhood that I had in the first two decades of my life. But anyway, so going yeah. on, that, that's kind of the long way to get to your question. I'm sorry. Ma. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. But I, I, I do, if you don't mind, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. But I, I do think that that's, there's kind of like a really powerful thing in there too and this is you know you know we're both parents and and you know you're constantly kind of like looking at these these things that 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 strengthen you know a lot of this just comes back that's our future right and that idea that you had that the pinnacles that you have achieved in your sport and the amount of time that you spent fully believing that you could you know and 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 that it mattered as much as it truly does you know, and without being hampered by this, this societal madness, you know, that creeps into these darker sides of culture, these toxicities, you know what I mean, that, that creep in. And, and I, I think it, it says a lot, uh, speaking about our children, you know, and, and all of those different places where society has this, this sick perception, you know, like, like the perception that, that women's sports wouldn't matter or, or less impactful or whatever, whatever. But that idea is and, and that space that you spent not being hampered by by that that you know, by seeing other people that the foolish belief of that in other people's eyes and the benefit that that might have had to your life is worth taking a little moment for. And also, um where is Spencer Morona now? As, <laughs> as, as a as that guy, has he made any World I, I'm Cups? Not, I'm not Super entirely Bowls? sure, other than he's not invited at many, uh, you know, <laughs> he's not to, parties anymore. He's not coming to the barbecue. Union. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, the, um, or the Super Bowl party. Yeah, yeah, true. Right. I don't think he's changed much, to be honest. But, 
Uh, you know, I, I do have to say, you know, I already said this, but small ass town, single mom, but I, I was a have not, but credit to my mom and credit to my grandparents. I didn't, I didn't know that. And, you know, I, I was, <laughs> I was probably the best athlete at that time at the university. You know, I was representing our country at the highest level and I was a female athlete and he, he, he might've disrespected me, but not every male athlete at our university, including my now husband, um, disrespected me. You know, I was uplifted by a lot of fellow male athletes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important in this discussion because I think, um, you know, we as women, I, I think we have a lot of blame um, when it comes to why we are sexualized, um, objectified, um, maybe not treated as that hardcore athlete that we want to be known as. Um, and, 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 and that's a deeper issue. I mean, there's, there's a lot of variables involved with that. But I think one of the most important things is to make sure that we have strong males side by side with us. Mm -hmm. recognizing our talent, recognizing our strength and recognizing what we bring to to this world and to future generations. I, that, that's a huge part of this. And to, to think back about, you know, this guy named Spencer Morona, he was probably 20 years old. He, I'm not saying he's changed much, but there were also 18, 19, 20 year olds who saw and respected young female athletes at that at that point in time so mm -hmm. i mean that that's a huge part of this discussion is to make sure that we have counterparts our male counterparts who are fighting this good fight alongside of us mm, yeah that that goes into like i, I kind of had this was idea to bring this up later too but this kind of goes directly to that question because we've been having in, in in the hip-hop world there's been a series of of different individuals that have been getting called out lately particularly in the breaking community for this kind of toxic behavior, you know, and like, uh, you know, me and, and, and some other brothers and sisters as that, you know, as we're having this conversation have been, have been discussing this. And I think back, you know, like on my upbringing and how many, how many moments there have been when I look back on it now, you know, I'm like, that was sick, you know, and like just the different ways of regarding, you know, of, of men regarding women or the way that sex is dealt with or like a man's needs and wants over wh whatever it is you know there's all these different kind of like toxic behaviors that often come out in very damaging ways sometimes physical sometimes other but like really throw a wrench in our attempts to try to make a better world out of this place a more equitable world a, a fair and more just world and 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 a part of the idea in the conversation is like how do we denormalize this like, how do we take some of those moments that was just like, was nothing for, for men to say this certain comment, you know what I mean? Or to act a certain way or to, or to like, you know, treat a woman or someone else in this particular way. And, and it just like, I, I can think back to times when, when I look at it now, it makes me cringe. But at the time, like, I didn't even barely notice it as much because um, it was just so normal. And I think we're starting to wake up, wake up to this a little bit more as, you know, as as a culture and as a people. But part of the, the idea is like, what do we do? A big part of it is like, what do the men, what is how What kind of actions can we take? But I guess all of us together is like, what? Yeah, did, I mean, what, how do we denormalize this? How do we break these norms that are so set in where do like Spencer didn't even think, you know, like he thought that was something's already to say. And God bless, there was another man standing nearby it was his counterpart that was able to contradict that impose another you know there's another normal 
besides this kind of sick behavior. But like, yeah, how do we, what have you experienced in like that process of kind of like breaking those things apart, facing those things? And, and what, what advice do you have for, for us brothers that are really trying to take that apart within our, our collective cultures? I think that we can't blame men, Matt. Mm. They're not the only ones responsible. I think about this a lot. It's a balancing act as a female athlete. I've walked um, that that livelihood on. Uh, I compared to a male athlete, I don't make as much money on the field for my talents, for my successes on the field, for my breaking world records. I don't fucking make as much money to my male counterparts who aren't even recognizable on the international level. Even when you're bringing so, in more money for, for and you know, your employers. In. Not uh -huh. just me personally, but my, my uh -huh. female teammates are bringing in more money to the Federation. And, and that's, that's a whole nother issue, but we bring in more money through, through advertisements, um, through winning, through, well, it, it, that tend not ticket sales, but through viewership, yes, on the major networks, uh -huh. yes, but not uh -huh. through ticket sales. And, and ticket sales has to do with because U.S. soccer only opens the bottom half of football stadiums for us. They won't sell the entire stadium. And, and that's a, just a, a, another process they use to keep us where we should be, which is under the men. The men can sell at a stadium at, let's say, um, Oh shit! You know what? You guys, I moved to North Carolina. I'm forgetting the name of Quest Field. I'm still gonna go to Quest. <laughs> what what is it called? Seahawk Stadium. Oh my gosh! Shows you that I'm an East Coaster now. Anyways, oh, wow. <laughs> or or I'm just um, an old school Washingtonian. Quest Field. So anyway, yeah, 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 right. Seahawk Stadium. Um, when we played there after the World Cup, the most popular team in the United States after winning the World Cup, um, I had one of the owners from the Seahawks approach me and say, "Hey." I can sell this out easily. You guys are World Cup champions. Let's open. You need to tell U.S. Soccer to open the entire stadium, the upper levels as well. And U.S. Soccer said, "Nah, we're good with selling 22,000 tickets. We're good. We don't need to sell 50,000 or 60,000. We're good with 22,000 because we break even. And therefore, the women can no longer say that they sell more tickets than the men. So that's wow. a completely... Completely it's, different it's issue. It's almost self-defeating, yeah, right? Like it is, you're it is. throwing money away in order to maintain this kind of like hierarchy or control. structure control. control. Absolutely. Um, but but where I was going with the what what men can do, I I can't put the blame on on men's shoulders because you know when it comes to us as women, we have to take a stance. And I've seen us break a number of times. Um, I see us many of us continuing to allow ourselves to be objectified. Um, I had to rely on my own, or we as women athletes have to rely on our own marketability to get more money off the field. So, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I had, I had a great career, you know, but it's still, you know, 20 years, that's it. I'm not going to continue to play soccer when I'm 40, 50, 60 years mm -hmm. old. So I need to make the money. And for me, I had to have that balancing act. I almost got paid millions of dollars to be in Playboy. You know what my agent wanted me to do? He wanted me to take it all off. He wanted me to, to get that paycheck. And what would that do? I mean, that, that's a personal decision that each female athlete has to make. And, and it would have been a great paycheck. I always wanted to be known first and foremost for my athletic ability. But to make that money off the, to go on Dancing with the Stars even, 
it, it's it's humbling because I still want to be the best goalkeeper and the best soccer. That's what I want to be known as. But I have to make money on the side. And it objectifies and it minimizes my own athletic ability. And most times women are actually the problem because we we don't know when to say no or we need some extra money or we're not just getting paid and respected because of our athletic talent. So I hate I hate the quote Game of Thrones, but the wheel keeps turning and sets always sells, you know. So female athletes will always be marginalized and objectified and somehow we must break the wheel and and I'm not sure that falls only on men's shoulders. It doesn't. Sure, you know, sure. I think we're to blame a lot of the time. So we collectively have to come together and break that wheel. Yeah. Okay. And and then and then just just to define this wheel, just just in in fullness, what I'm hearing is so the pay gap is inherently there and there's even even situations where this the the sport and the people who control it are throwing away money to keep this scenario unequal and so the the general pay is this much less um for for women soccer players and so the way that you make up for that that disparity in income is by taking more sponsorships um, finding more ways kind of like into that like public eye. And then for for people in entertainment industry in general, it seems it's pretty well known that if you want to keep and maintain spence, uh, sponsorships, the, the these sponsors have particular lifestyles or image things that they want. And so by making your income more sponsor-based, you therefore are more affected in in the way that that money may or may not flow depending on how freely you act or or how you act in public or what you do, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my major sponsors, Nike, I was with Nike the, the moment I graduated from college. So I had a long career with Nike and they gave me, offered me a, a lifetime contract to not talk about equal pay, to not talk about equality because it affects, well, they give millions of dollars to U.S. soccer, but also it affects their own company. They so, make money selling shirts with the Nike emblem on it saying equality, but they have their own issues. In right, their and own these guys company. jumping on Colin Kaepernick and this, this, this whole question but of they're like, making are these money guys off of our fight, off of our fight, and they wanted to give me a lifetime contract to, to silence me. And so, wait, hold on. Just, I don't, I don't, um, this, that's, I don't want to even, I want to give space for this, this bombing for people to understand what's really going on inside this industry. Nike explicitly put into the contract that you staying away from publicly speaking about equality was a condition of, of you having a lifetime contract with them. Absolutely. Mm. I, uh, when we talk about being blackballed from the soccer community, so mm -hmm. I'm one of the best commentators, um, one of the most intellectual minds when it comes to soccer on the field, reading the game defensively, offensively, even playing out of the back, distributing the ball through the midfield. Um, this is what made me so good. It wasn't just my athletic ability, but my ability to read the game. And I now find work as a commentator uh, overseas through BBC, not through Fox, not through ESPN, not through CBS even, not through any American channels because they're uh, working with the United States Soccer Federation and, and mm. USSF actually has a say in what commentators does their games. So you have not seen me commentate one national team game, although I'm one of the most 
high profile players to ever come through and one of the best mm -hmm. commentators. So when we say blackballed, it's, it's been completely blackballed. And I have lost millions of dollars when it comes to sponsorships, when it comes to appearances, and when it comes to my, my commentating career. So uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is how things are done. I mean, uh, a lot of times history is written this way. People are written out of history. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I'm, not, I'm no fool. To that I, uh, I'm in the fight wholeheartedly. I'm in the fight for the for the right reasons, and I think U.S. soccer has finally realized that there's no amount of pay that can keep me quiet. That ultimately I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not in anybody's pockets. You can't pay me off. Um, they're going to have to deal with me at some point or another, and that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing settlements. We're seeing U.S. soccer come to the table. We're seeing. Um, you know, uh, the current president, Joe Biden, coming out saying, uh, U.S. soccer, you better deal with this because you're not going to get government funding anymore. Oh, so really? I've seen this out now for, for quite some time. And I, I do still have faith. You know, I think there's been a number of times throughout this process where I could have lost faith. It's It's been heart-wrenching at times. It's, yeah. I felt on an island all by myself at times. It's been tough. But I, I still hold out hope. I, I really do, because I know I'm on the right side of history. The, the federal laws, you know, 60 years ago that were passed, they stand by me or I stand by them. And at some point there's going to be a reckoning. And what you're seeing right now is you're seeing a reckoning um, in a number of different ways, whether it's major names being brought down in Hollywood for behavior. You're, you're, mm -hmm. they, you feel it. You know, there's this unsettling feeling in our society where there is a wake up call and there is a reckoning. So I actually do hold out hope. You know, sometimes my husband asks me, how the hell are you still doing this? <laughs> it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. But uh but I feel good. You know, we have we have twin babies now. They just turned a year old. Congratulations. And it only motivates me more to continue to fight for the future generations. I can look at myself in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah, and you know like it's it's you know, there's a lot of athletes out there. There's a lot of people that are incredibly talented, you know, even to, to, to my own son, you know, like we, we often have this conversation about talent versus hard work and, you know, and like there, there's, and how, how in my life, I haven't always been able to guarantee them the most talented far from it, you know, in many cases, but I, I can affect the amount of work that I'm willing to do, how hard I'm going to do it how how much i'm willing to sacrifice for it how tireless i might be around it and 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 like i said like in in, in the scope of having a career to leave your career as at, at the pinnacle there's people people going to be struggling to break these records for years to come you know and to leave at that point because you stood for the people because you stood for yourself because you stood for something bigger and greater it's 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 quite an honor it's a pretty dope when you really, when people, and I think this is like a lot of things where, like you said, like people in the sport or people in that position having to kind of like decide, well, shoot, am I too scared to continue on with this because of what I stand to lose? Am I enticed by what I have to gain by taking that lifelong contracting and, and signing off my ability to fight for, for what I believe in or whatever? And you know, like, for someone who wasn't scared out of it or 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 enticed into signing that blood deal or whatever it is, you know, and, and gave up on those things, you know, you dominated the sport and you left with a, you know, as 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 a champ for the people. And, and 
I think if more people kind of like looked at it like that with the honor that it deserves, you know, like rather than just like you said, like fading out gracefully and, and walking into the sunset, retiring or, or, you know, or doing a Mike Tyson and coming back and <laughs> punched a few more times or whatever, you know, like to like, you know, to uh, that's, that's Huey Newton said revolutionary suicide, right? Like if we're going to, if, if, if they're, they're breaking us down at every turn that they can and trying to push us into this kind of self-destruction, why not, why not do it for the revolution? And, and, and I think that's an incredible, incredible honor. And, and for me, when I look at that story, I see a hero far greater than fading off into the sunset, you know, and letting the sport just be the sport as as incredible and talented as that may be. Um, and I think that, like you said, like breaking these norms, that's a huge, huge piece in, in like how we can kind of reconstruct our, our collective cultures into the way we look at what it means to be successful in, in, in uh, uh, athletics or any, any arena, right? I think what's important on that is, is I never played soccer to make some political statement. You know, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not huge, obviously, in the, in the hip hop culture. But for me, hip hop in itself is, is a political statement, you know, and, hmm. and uh, I think that that's what scares me when you think about breaking <clears throat> possibly an Olympic sport. Governance, you know, wouldn't governance kill kind of that spirit, the spirit of, I don't know, of Revolution, standing up against freedom. the norm, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, it's something to think about. It, it almost makes me sad because when I think about, uh, not that I know much about breaking, but it seems like a sense of freedom, you know, not, not being a part of social norms. It's, it's almost rebellious, not quantifiable. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about being in an Olympic sport, you're talking about fitting into a mold, being silenced, um, playing a part of the system that they want you to play, being governed inside and out. And to me, that, that goes against what, what I would see as hip hop culture. Um, but at the mm -hmm. same time, when you look at the opportunities that it can provide um, financially and otherwise for the youth throughout America and in, in you know, different neighborhoods throughout America, I think that's where you see the true potential mm -hmm. of, of finding governance in, in that particular sport. Um, so it, it, which I wouldn't call it a sport, honestly. I, Would you? I, yeah. So that's, always, that's, that's every, sport. every time we talk about this, we got to break that down. Uh -huh. It's an art form. <laughs> and how, how would you define, how would you define sport? I mean, for me, sport is the essence of, of competition. Uh-huh. Period. Mm. Competition. Hmm. So, I, I mean, hmm. why don't you tell me, Matt, what makes breaking a sport? Well, I, um, in the aspect of competition, I, and I haven't really like sat on where, what I, I feel like, I feel like breaking is breaking a sport or not kind of is a choice, right? Like inherently it may not be either or, um, but, but if we, I mean, so competition is, is, is definitely a core element right of breaking since its inception it has been a um a competitive art form right so that's that's definitely inside of there um there's um it, it's obviously it's it's highly athletic right and there is 
there is sets of criteria, some of them more or less tangible. And I think that's one of like the governance questions, right, too, is, is, is will the way that when it comes down to everything, kind of like the dust settles and, and, and there's an agreement on what, uh, the, what, the, what the, the criteria for scoring breaking in the Olympics will be, will, will that then kind of become the controlling factor? And, and, and you know, we were saying as we are kind of like chatting as we were getting started in here, um, how Ken Swift was kind of saying how that there's, he's, he's not liking coming in to judge these competitions and then he's handed an iPad where you kind of like just check boxes. You know, there's something intangible to it too. There's something in the musicality. So it, I, I completely feel you. There's, there's something in it that's so much an art form that it's scary to think about boxing that into into any stringent criteria right um and then i also think that goes back to the points you were saying before too of so if there's there's a double-edged sword right like if one if 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 the big one of the biggest advantages to this is it's offering offering new economic opportunities right if it's if 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 some you know young young b-girl or b boy in their community that's you know their rec is shop in the in the rec center or whatever just you know coming like you don't you you could come out of that and potentially be an olympic athlete or on a world stage and make all the money that comes along with that right and then you've broken down the the way that being in a sponsor-based art form and, and and i would be willing to wager that sponsorship will be way more um you'll make way more money off the sponsorship than any type of like salary or Olympic fee that you get paid or anything like that. And then there's the criteria of like how the, how the, like you said, with soccer, it became, it's, it's now it's feeling like a rich white kids sport and who has the advantages to go through that system. Right. And so, yeah, those are some, some of the big worries about what's really going to happen from this. And, and I think you're breaking down some of that, some of that without even before you've been touched on breaking some of the, the, the biggest concerns and maybe, maybe it would be really good to get a perspective from you on going back to that and the idea of money moving throughout this and the sponsorship question and, and the fees and the salaries and, and then that kind of like the way that privilege factors into it. You ran for a U.S. Soccer Federation president and, and you, um, you just to note, you faced all those powers that be in order to do that. And, and I know from what you had spoken about that, that you knew that that was, that was largely an act to, to bring these ideas to the forefront and expose a lot that was going on. And one of the things that you made into that platform was um, access, access to the sport, access to the, the, the camps and the workshops and the scouts and the different things that should be opened up for everyone, not just rich white kids. How do you, I mean, what, can you give us a little wisdom to, as breaking kind of like begins to go through that process, what kind of institutions should we be building to kind of protect against that happening to breaking? Well, I'm going to be quite honest with you. It scares me. Um, mm -hmm. You take what I see as an art form with obviously incredible athletic talent. I'm not diminishing the, the, the athletic side of breaking, mm -hmm. but it scares me. Um, if you want to be about the Olympic culture, just, just know and be ready to conform. Mm. Otherwise you don't, 
<laughs> I don't personally think you don't belong, but but that's that's how it's treated. Um, you you have to fit into the mold if you're going to be an Olympic sport, and it does scare me because right now what we're seeing in youth sports throughout our country is a way for the system to take from our youth to make money for the system, not to help our youth necessarily. So I ran for, for presidency, by the way, one of the scariest things I think I've ever done in a process that nobody even knows the rules to. You, you learn the rules as you go, which you know speaks to the lack of transparency in itself. Mm. So I didn't know how to get nominated. I, <laughs> I finally, in the, in the last minute, got my final nomination. I, need, I needed three nominations. I guess one of them um, wasn't valid. We didn't even understand why or the rules beyond, behind it. But I got my third nomination to become a candidate. I was the last candidate out of eight candidates to run for U.S. soccer presidency. I didn't run because I thought I would win. I ran because former men players who've never ran a multi-million dollar business, they were running. And I knew I had more important things to say than they did. I knew that they were running just who knows why. Um, honestly, I mean, they didn't have a, a, a hard fought campaign. They didn't have really important topics. They weren't passionate. They were running, um, I think to, to disrupt the system, which I have to give credit to and respect to, but I knew my voice, um, was more powerful. I knew that I wasn't afraid to touch on topics that many of them were afraid to touch on because they were encumbered by working for Fox or working for U.S. soccer or being a, a U.S. soccer council member, I was completely unencumbered. It didn't matter what I said. I wasn't going to lose any more money or lose another job. I was in a, unencumbered and I knew my voice was important to run as a U.S. soccer president, as a candidate. Mm -hmm. So it was one of the toughest things that I have ever done. It took strength. It took courage. Um, I, I, I went up there. I gave my speech in front of the former U.S. soccer president. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was tough. I learned throughout the entire process um, about the, the voting process, which they keep kind of murky on purpose. I think, uh, let's say there were about a thousand voting delegates. We got probably 250 of the names at midnight before the election at 8 a.m. the next morning. So wow. they kept 250 delegates from us as a candidate so so the process is all messed up i mean you're not you're not going to beat the system if you're from outside the system you have to be in the system as a candidate to know who the voting delegates are so mm -hmm. the process for me was eye-opening but i also was privy to documents that they never wanted to give me but they had to give me as a u.s soccer president candidate mm -hmm. so I'm proud I did it. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But what I realized when I spoke to all of the different state delegates and presidents from the different states is that U.S. soccer, the national governing body for our sport here in America, was not taking care of not just the youth, but the Paralympians. Our U.S. deaf team, who, by the way, were back-to-back -back World Cup champs, they weren't taking care of adult soccer. They were not putting money back into the system, but they were taking from our youth all across the United States. And not only that, but they were they were uh, neglecting to look at, at many of the low-income quality players in our country. So the system to the top was broken, completely broken. And what I realized is from a low-income family myself, from the country, from rural area in eastern Washington, 
a single family home, I would never have been able to fulfill my dreams as one of the best soccer players in our state of Washington. I never would have been able to fulfill my dreams as a young girl to play for the United States national team, to play in the Olympics, to play in the World Cup in the system that exists today. Because today you have to have money. You have to be, you have to come from an affluent family to even be successful in the sport here in America. And I'm afraid that under governance with breaking, it's gonna become the same way. And what we wanna see is we wanna give kids and youth so many opportunities to perhaps uh, just, I don't know, uh, be influenced by coaches and great teachers, be around other kids who share a passion for breaking or a passion for that particular sport. You wanna see them have hope to rise to the next level and to get to that next competition. But in right now, what's happening in soccer in America, not just soccer, but because youth sports has become a business, it's become profitable in the United States, it's a way to make money for bigger organizations, it's been monetized. And what we're seeing now is we're alienating so many different communities. So right now, breaking is this beautiful, you know, artistic, competitive sport that can inspire young kids. But what happens when we give that sport up to this governing body that wants to make money from the same youth who wants to find a possibly a way out way or wants to find a breaking out of their economic position? Yeah. It, it scares me. It, it really does because right now, youth sports, not just soccer, is uh, is 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 being taken advantage of to put money in the pockets of the system. And a lot of people have been trying to break it. I'm trying to break it with my lawsuit and my complaint with the United States Olympic Committee. Um, but it, I mean, that that's where youth soccer, not youth soccer, but that's where youth sports has gone here in America. Mm. It's monetized. Yeah, and and so I guess that's a really incredible caveat to to the hip hop community in that respect. Because one of the things that's so beautiful is, I mean, you know, my my um my my youngest daughter now is in a class with two legends of breaking. You know, two two OGs, piece to to Asian one and Zulu Gremlin, who we appreciate so much for this. But it's free. You know, like they they the hip hop has. Uh, it's something baked into his culture that is share and each one teach one. Right. And, and, and what you're describing is there's going to be a whole lot of other motivations to monetize that process. It's going to be a whole, when it's Olympic sport, it's going to be a whole lot of other opportunities of those, you know, more privileged kids and their parents being willing to pay for their, their kids to get this. And, uh, it seems like one of the things that we can really consider to protect ourselves against that is to continue to, to have this, you know, and we want our, our elders and our OGs to get paid for teaching and doing this and make this yeah. all a viable thing for everybody too. But yeah, that, 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 that this free class is, you know, like, yeah, we don't have a big budget, you know, speaking personally, you know, for, for, for a lot of these kind of like extracurriculars. And we try to put as much as we possibly can into our kids and, and their passions. And I know um, there's folks out there that, that, that got less than us, you know, and, they they get left out of this process if we don't continue to to stay on this you know on this each one teach one and and offering these aspects of practice and training and and learning about the culture and and its art forms like breaking you know at a way that uh, all of our communities can afford um that's I, that's a 
like we boil down what you just said. That's an incredible warning to our um, to our community. Yeah, absolutely. And keep in mind the rest of the world when it comes to youth sports, especially youth soccer, which is obviously the the, the sport, the global sport of the world, the beautiful game, mm-hmm. the most played sport around the world. Um, this only happens here in America. The system is upside down. You, we look at it as the inverted triangle. You're taking money from the bottom and it's funneling it, its way up to the top, that top mm-hmm. being U.S. Soccer Federation. Mm-hmm. The rest of the world, you take any country, you take Brazil, you take Germany, you, you, you take any country when it comes to being um, competitive with soccer, even non-competitive, honestly, even Iceland. It's, it's an inverted triangle. They take the money from the Federation and it gets funneled down to the youth. The bottom mm. part of that that pyramid or that triangle is the youth system. Mm. You invest in the youth if you want to be one of the most competitive nations in any sport. It goes back to the youth. And I always, you know, in every uh, conversation I have, I always go back to LeBron James. How, if we're making youth soccer pay thousands of dollars a year, if we're making them pay and we're only looking at those ones that can pay to play for our national team, we're only looking at those clubs and and the MLS system, the feeder teams. We're only looking at the scouts for U.S. soccer. We're only looking at those players who can afford to play. That doesn't mean they're the best players in the country. Mm-hmm. They're looking at the only ones who can afford to play. How in the hell are we going to find the LeBron James of soccer in Akron, Ohio? Because in our current system today, we, we never will. We're, we're alienating too many talented kids. And, and, it, and it's coming out in our in, in how competitive our teams are from from what's saying too, right? Like, well, of course. I mean, our men haven't qualified yeah. for the World Cup, uh, let alone win one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a trip! <laughs> so when we speak about things that are backwards <laughs> and the norms, we got to break. Um, I, I, you know, I, I sound jaded here, Matt. I, mm-hmm. I really do. I sound jaded, but I've been in the system my entire life. I was on the youth national team at the age of 12 years old. So I've been a part of the system and I feel like I always wanted to buck against the system, but, but I, I wanted to win more and I wanted to win medals and I wanted to be the best. And, but it, it, when you look at something like, you know, even ballet, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's elite, it's white, it's an art form, a form of aristocracy. Um, But it is an art form, you know, I I just, Mm -hmm. breaking to me is far from that. Even though it's an art form like ballet, it's far from the aristocracy, you know, it's it's far from the political, the politics, as far as I know right now. And it's more freeform and loving it's not about the rules and the boundaries you know it's a form of rebellion you put it into the olympics it's just hard to quantify i mean now you're you're silencing people you want them to abide by rules and those boundaries and regulations and to me as much as i may sound jaded it's just sad to see that that incredible beautiful culture might go down that same path Mm. yeah and like you said too i mean like we know ballet is there's nothing inherently about the people who dominate ballet that make them the dominant athletes within it, right? It's the system. It's the system that allows privilege to be the the gateway, you know, in and up that ladder. And yeah, that is terrifying to think of of something that's been so hard fought and so 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 much blood, sweat, and tears has gone into building this up. And so many of the institutions too, 
you know, that, that, that make the money flow around uh, break-in, that make the publicity flow around it. So many of these institutions have been, like when we talk about B-Boy Summit or, 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 or Mighty Four or Freestyle, like these are like the, the premier institutions around exposing this, this, this art form, and they're from the communities that the art form was, was created in, and that being at risk is it's a scary thing. It is. It is. So I got one for you because it's okay. all about bringing in money and opportunity for you. So why can't there be a system where you're not complete competing at the Olympics, but you're still bringing in the dough? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we want to do. We want to create opportunities, financial and otherwise. So there's there's got to be another way, I would think. Um, conforming just seems like it would steal its soul. So mm. you can build on a national level, but why does it have to be built? on the Olympic level. I mean, that's, mm. that's something to think about. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And that's words of wisdom for somebody who's been through those trenches too. So, so that said, I know I've kept you for a while here and you got the babies, um, and, and life to go on about, um, kind of like wrapping up at least this stage of the conversation. Um, and, and maybe, maybe we may have to have more episodes coming in the future. Um, so much, so much of this, um, so much, of the uniqueness that somebody's been through the experiences and been to the levels that you've been to competed on and succeeded on and, and the things you've been faced with, um, that wisdom reaches and speaks to all of us. Um, kind of like in closing of this, taking that back down to folks that might be listening to this, that, um, that, you know, like your, your, your average everyday joke, you know, that's kind of like, you know, is driving in their car listening to this or, or, or whatever that um, is not at that, that level with, of having that platform, but still feels the same way as we do in what we're discussing and what we need to change in this world. Do you got any, like any, any advice, any jewels, any, anything practical that we can, that we could share to just, you know, our, our, our average folks on the street of how they can contribute to this process of, of, fighting for an equitable and just world in terms of gender equity or any of the other struggles that, you know, your, your struggle has trickled out and into like, yeah, what, what do you say to that, that average, average person, Joe or Mary? It's whatever. tough. You know, I ask myself all the time, what kind of advice can I give to help, help, you know, the, with this fight that we're constantly battling and struggling with? I, I, I never have like, a call to action, so to speak, you know, X, Y, and Z, this is what you need to do. But I, I always tell people, you just can't consume, you know, you can't, it's about empowerment. You can't consume, you know, you can't partake in, in objectifying and sexualizing, Mm. Um, whether you're a woman, whether you're a male, I mean, it's a part of our culture. It has been for, for some time, but we're seeing, you know, I said there was a reckoning. We've, We've seen it. We've seen it with Africa Bumbada, uh, we mm-hmm. saw it with USA Gymnastics, mm-hmm. you know, people in the position of power that objectify and abuse women. This isn't a new concept by any means, mm-hmm. but we need to stand against it. Hold we need to not consume. We need to have strong and intelligent women and men. Um, and at the end of the day, I always say you have to be educated in, in our fight. What is our fight? Why are we fighting for equal pay? Do we know the law behind it? Because at the end of the day, it, it, you have to know the law. You have to know where we can fight, 
how we can get in. And so at the end of the day, it's always about educating oneself and then spreading that education onto others. And, you know, the last thing I'll say here is that silence never has changed the world in the past and it's not going to change the world now. So talk, you know, use your word, speak up, stand for something, but silence never changed the world. Mm, can't be still on a moving train, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, sis. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the, the, the story and, and the way that it goes down, like I hope folks take this and see the, the pride that, that you use. Like I said, here's your roses while you can smell them. Um, you are a, a hero to our community and to, into communities around the world, you know, and that standing for something is, is often dangerous. And that fight is often long and hard fought. And sometimes you don't even see the, the results till after your lifetime. But uh, just know that we here at the Meeting of the Minds podcast and, and every folks that feel the same way as I do in this hip-hop community, we, uh, we stand with you. And that fist is pumping hard. Sister Hope Solo. Power to the people. I appreciate your love and support. And it's been an honor to... Uh, to have this meeting of the minds, you know, you, you've pushed me to a different level. Um, you know, I haven't been a part of the hip hop world, I, but at the end of the day, you know, it's the same hard fought battles that we all go up against when it comes to societal norms and societal issues. So uh, equality, my fight for against injustices and for equality is, is a fight that um, will always be a part of me and I'm happy to share it with your world. So I, I'm honored um, that you guys welcomed me in. So thank you, Maddie B. Much thank love. You. Much, Much love. love sis. Power to the people. Power to the people. Yo. <laughs> well, folks, that was Hope Solo that we just had the blessing of spending our time with today. Arguably the greatest goalkeeper of all time in the sport of soccer and a revolutionary in the fight for equal rights and equality in the world. You can find out more about her. Uh, she's got hopesolo.com. You can go to. She has an autobiography, Solo, a memoir of hope, and uh, she's at Hope Solo on IG. And there was a lot of info in there. I'm sure some of y'all are Googling, trying to find out uh, some more about some of the things that she dropped. Also, there were some interesting pieces about our conversation revolving around breaking, entering into the Olympics as an Olympic sport and what that's going to mean for the culture. Hope y'all join us for further discussions as we continue to break down some of this tough information digest it and see what's good with it. We'll be back with more, y'all. Peace and love.